0: This podcast series is brought to you by Not Defined by Endo, providing support to endometriosis patients, their loved ones, and anyone suffering from symptoms that they suspect to be caused by endometriosis. This episode is sponsored by Totesphere, sustainable merchants in the UK, who sell products that are good for you and good for the environment. Hello, and welcome to episode three of Endo 101 a mini-series that seeks to inform and educate on the enigma that is endometriosis. My purpose on this mini-series is to talk about all the aspects of endometriosis, right from proper definition to treatment methods and even myths that are pandered about the disease. I am so privileged to be joined today by Mr. Thomas Bainton, the Endometriosis Fellow and a Senior Registrar in Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London, UK. Today, we are talking about the path from symptoms to diagnosis and treatment options for endometriosis. Remember that the gold standard treatment for endometriosis is excision surgery to remove the disease completely. However. There are many factors that can require your doctors to offer various other treatments, such as birth control, hormonal treatment, pain management, and so on. These options could depend on your situation, for example, the desire to have children, which means your fertility has to be treated as priority, the location of the disease, for example, if it is deep infiltrating bowel disease, that could be complex and potentially require a colostomy bag and so on. One thing that is very important is to understand all your options and why your doctor thinks a particular approach is the best one for you. Today we're talking all about hormonal treatments so join us on this episode as Tom breaks it all down for us. If you have any questions you are keen to get answers to send an email to info at notdefinedbyendo.com with your questions or DM me on Instagram at notdefinedbyendo or Tom at ccmig.london. If we have enough questions, we just might do a bonus episode where we answer them all. So I'm so glad to have you back today, Tom.
1: Pleasure to be here again. Thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) I'm excited for today's episode because this is something that many endometriosis patients will benefit from. And this is a clear understanding of what the path from diagnosis should be. So a clarity of what they should do, what the treatments are, and why they are offered those treatments. So Mm. let's begin. (laughs) So my first question, say I'm 18 years old and I have had progressively worsening period pains for the last, like, say, three years. I get nauseous, I usually vomit, and I'm extremely bloated. I end up crying on the bathroom floor and use hot water bottles um, throughout my periods. and painkillers are no longer touching the pain. And over the last year, I have missed a good number of classes each month because of this pain. And around six months ago, I started getting pain during bowel movement what would you say is the next step? What should I do? What would be a usual path from me having those symptoms to diagnosis and then potential treatment?
1: Mm, Absolutely. I think the the first thing to mention is those symptoms certainly aren't normal. Um, Thinking about painful periods or heavy periods, it is definitely true that probably the majority of women, particularly during puberty when periods are starting and settling down, will have some pain you know it's very common for women to take pain relief but having to take days off school having to you know cry on the bathroom floor as you describe painkillers such that you're ending up getting side effects you know constipation because of all the codeine and things is definitely not normal and it's something that does require investigation it's sadly an experience that a lot of people have had and i think a lot of people listening to this might look back on those days whether they have a diagnosis of endometriosis now or not and have thought look that was going on for years and years in my teens and i you know, thought something was up. I spoke to people about it, but it was all too often not disregarded necessarily, but put down to a symptom that, oh, it'll probably settle down as you get a bit older or, oh, that's normal for girls, take some ibuprofen and get on with it. But actually that experience definitely isn't something that should be put up with. And there are plenty of things that can be done to investigate and hopefully help. It is also true to say that those symptoms are not universally going to be attributable by endometriosis. And we do see a lot of women with um, symptoms of, of particularly heavy or painful periods, and it might actually be something else. We haven't talked much about adenomyosis yet in these series. I think we're going to talk about it a bit more. We did talk about it at the beginning, but that as well is a sort of flavor of endometriosis and certainly closely related, but that can definitely explain the, 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 the painful periods. Particularly, You mentioned this 18-year-old girl is also suffering from pain during bowel movement. And that again is a symptom that could well be attributable to endometriosis. It it, it is a fairly common symptom we see, particularly in deep infiltrating endometriosis. That's where it's involving the area between the womb and the back passage. And that would definitely, again, be a symptom that you want to have investigated. That's not a normal symptom. So in combination, I think, This girl should, together with her family or whoever she's with, be making conclusions to get something looked at. You know, don't put up with it. The first port of call in these circumstances, certainly in the UK, would be going to your GP, who I would hope would listen very carefully, take a full history of things. They want to know important questions like when did the period start, how regular the cycle is, what the flow's Mm -hmm. like and how much it's affecting your life. Are you having to take time off school or work? Are you having to, 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 to interrupt social engagements during your period when you, you wouldn't do otherwise? That gives us an idea of how serious it might be and certainly what the priorities are for treatment. Of course, this discussion and all these episodes are about endometriosis, and that is definitely sort of number one diagnosis. Let's think about it. Let's talk about it. But painful periods, or as we describe in medicine, dysmenorrhea are more common than endometriosis is. The treatments in the first stages would probably be fairly similar whether this is painful periods and pain during defecation associated with endometriosis or whether it's painful periods that aren't caused by endometriosis. And that's going to be some t- discussion around what kind of pain relief to use. And I would say, although pain relief is not curing the problem, if it's helping you symptomatically, then there's very little downside paracetamol is exceptionally safe there are some side effects to non-steroidal medications if women have asthma particularly or kidney problems or stomach problems but again talking about the sorts of women who suffer from endometriosis, usually touch wood obviously young reproductive years and, and generally fitting well otherwise unless there are other specific issues Ibuprofen is normally quite a good pain relief for this kind of thing slightly stronger things than that. We're into codeines, dihydrocodeines, again, used with a little bit more caution. They can, as a terrible side effect, cause quite significant constipation, sometimes nausea and vomiting, which again, can all be symptoms due to endometriosis. And we wouldn't want to make those things worse. Yeah. The GP would probably, after taking a full history, talk about treatment options beyond just simple pain relief. Mostly, and what most people might have experienced here, is being offered some sort of hormonal treatment along the way. We don't know what this 18-year-old girl is doing at the moment. She might have been on different pills in the past. She might have been using things for contraceptives. She might have previously had an experience using hormonal treatment to manage heavy or painful periods. The most common thing in an 18-year-old is probably going to be the combined oral contraceptive to start with. So that is a pill with both estrogen and progesterone in. Those are the two, what we call sex hormones produced by the ovaries. And the idea is to try and suppress the hormonal cycle such that we smooth out the hormone release, release, I beg your pardon, to stop those big bursts around the time of menstruation that cause all those symptoms and make things painful. So going back to the, the, the initial question, sort of the path of those symptoms to diagnosis, essentially it's going into the GP to start with, the GP listening carefully, exploring all the symptoms that might be associated with it, whether it's bowel symptoms, whether it's fatigue, whether it's breathlessness, try and distinguish the time in which it's happening. Are these pains really just at the time of the period or actually they're pains elsewhere? Is there pain in the middle of the cycle, the beginning of the cycle? Other questions and sometimes some quite invasive questions occasionally, you know, the doctor would universally do this very sensitively, they might want to know a little bit about sexual intercourse, they might want to know a little bit about previous sexual partners or any STIs um, that you might have had checked for or experienced in the past, because all of these things can be linked together to try and draw a diagnosis. Questions about family history of endometriosis could also come into it, because we know it does, although it's not necessarily hereditary. I think we have talked about this in previous episodes. There is a correlation with, within families, so it's, it's important to ask those kind of things as well. People listening to this have already heard of endometriosis. They know about it. They've seeked it out, and you know, I think part of it's trying to spread the word and, 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 and making people know that this condition, this condition which affects up to 10% of people in the population, um, is out there be suspicious of it yourself. If the GP doesn't mention it, then, you know, say, well, you know, I've I've looked at this. I've done some research myself. I've thought about it. I accept that it doesn't necessarily mean I've got endometriosis. We keep talking about it as being an enigma this elusive condition, but I could. Uh, Have you thought about that, doctor? You know, what do you think? Where should we go from here?
0: Amazing. That's a very clear path because i think one of the things that um many patients struggle with is like we we've all said being believed by the the doctors so having a very like having a clear um what would i call it like a history or the doctors taking a history of what you've been experiencing and we always try to say that for the patients they need to really record and monitor their symptoms and write it down so that they can really share that information with their doctors and they, they can figure out what the next steps are
1: absolutely i think part of the investigation with the gp would certainly be a symptom diary so usually you're recording there i think a lot of women now um are used to recording or tracking their cycles there's a huge number of apps available which are great and i as a gynecologist love it when someone's got their app. when was your last period well i know exactly when it was i can look it up i can tell you how many days i was bleeding for i can tell you what other uh, symptoms i was experiencing at the time so that's really useful and if you can come to the doctor with all that information you know it's not 100 percent necessary we, we would still hopefully be able to elicit reasonably accurately what's going on but but it's definitely useful and it shows that you know you've thought about the uh the potential possibilities.
0: Okay, so I wanted to talk about the hormonal treatments a bit more.
1: Mm. We
0: have said that those, that's, that is a path that um, doctors usually take for treatment of endometriosis, and this all has to do with the endocrine system. And you know, what exactly is it? Endocrine or endocrine?
1: <laughs> oh, well, it, it horses for courses, I suppose. Tomato, tomato. I tend to say endocrine, but I think a lot of people would say endocrine. <laughs> okay. yeah. All right, endocrine. so the
0: endocrine system. So, can we? Can you share? So we know that hormonal treatments have to do with that system. So can you hmm. share a bit more about what exactly is the endocrine system? What parts of the you know, body make up that system? And how do these hormonal treatments affect that system?
1: Absolutely. So the endocrine system describes broadly speaking, hormonal control throughout the whole body. And it's looking at all sorts of hormones, whether it's hormones that are making you pass urine or hormones that are causing you to grow when you're a child. I think focusing in on endometriosis, what's of particular relevance is the the sex hormone cycle. So we already mentioned that estrogen and progesterone are probably the ones that everyone's heard of, or or at least um, would do when they start reading about endometriosis. And those are sex hormones they're sex steroid hormones so a steroid is just a chemical makeup of something in the body we have got huge amounts of steroids in our body they're also used as a medication for other things in a different setting but they're hormones produced by the ovaries Um, men also have certain amounts of um, estrogen and progesterone and women similarly have a small amount of the male sex hormone testosterone And they all do different things, but focusing in on on, on the main two, um, estrogen and progesterone drive and regulate the menstrual cycle and help support an early pregnancy and into a pregnancy, because that's what the menstrual cycle is all about. The way the ovaries release estrogen and progesterone is actually controlled by the brain. And there's two bits of the brain that do it. There's an area called the hypothalamus, which is sort of the, the, the origin of most of these hormonal cycles. And that releases a hormone called um, gonadotropin-releasing hormone, GNRH, which we'll talk a little bit more about later because it it can be implicated in in one of the, the treatment options for endometriosis. And that GNRH works on a part of the brain called the pituitary. The pituitary gland lives on a little stalk right in the middle of the brain. And that releases two hormones that cause the ovaries to either increase or decrease their production of estrogen and progesterone depending and they're called luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone. What I suggest people do at this stage, and I don't know if we can put some of this on the the website or something, Tenny, but it's very easy to type into Google menstrual cycle or sex hormone regulation. Um, People might remember bits and bobs from biology, but it's all a big feedback loop with lots of pluses and minuses. An increase here causes a decrease there, which causes an increase there. But essentially, these hormones produced by the pituitary gland go down through the body, spread in the bloodstream, and they work on the ovary to control estrogen and progesterone release. During the first half of the menstrual cycle, um, what we describe as the proliferative phase in reference to the endometrium, which is the the bit that's related to endometriosis. If we're talking about the ovary, it's um, more commonly called the follicular phase. So that's to do with thickening of the endometrium. It's growing, it's getting new um, blood supply to it, uh, and also preparation of the ovaries, making an egg ready for ovulation. So that's happening from the beginning of your menstrual cycle. Day one of the menstrual cycle is when you start bleeding. So for the first, we always imagine women to have a 28-day bang on menstrual cycle. Of course, that's the textbook definition. It doesn't always happen like that. And so during the first half, the estrogen is gradually increasing. And then there are different spikes in those other hormones. There's a big spike in the LH level produced by the pituitary gland, and that causes ovulation. So one of those follicles that's been produced in the ovary during the first half then releases. The second half of the menstrual cycle is dominated by the hormone progesterone. Progesterone stabilizes the endometrium and it allows it to sort of mature and get ready for impending implantation of an embryo. Because the hope is what the body wants is during that period of ovulation and around five days around ovulation, there's a fertile window that conception happens, sperm meets egg, egg moves down the fallopian tube, and then it's got a really nice, juicy, rich environment full of good endometrium to be able to implant in and grow and develop a pregnancy. Either pregnancy happens, which I appreciate in the vast majority of women, most cycles doesn't. Um, then there's a feedback between the embryo producing some new hormones some pregnancy hormone levels um, that work on the ovary and it keeps the progesterone levels up High and stable, and it stabilizes that endometrium, holds it all at bay, and allows it to keep feeding the pregnancy, and the pregnancy develops and the placenta implants, and then that increases more progesterone levels, and that's the hormone of pregnancy primarily. So that's stabilizing the endometrium and stop it being angry. Um, If the pregnancy doesn't happen, progesterone levels go whoop, drop right down, and then the endometrial layer is going to shed and it's going to disappear. Um, have menstruation, so those are the days of bleeding, and then it all starts again afterwards. So that, broadly speaking, I suggest people look up a a diagram because it's quite difficult to sort of imagine just hearing it out loud. But those those two hormones, oestrogen and progesterone, driven by hormones released from the anterior pituitary, all controlled from this bit of the brain called the hypothalamus. And, of course, they all work in synchronicity with each other, control the levels throughout the cycle.
0: Amazing. That's, I know that people can't see uh, what you're saying. Like there's no blackboard where people can actually um, look at a diagram. But I think that was really, really clear talking about the cycle and how everything happens. So that's amazing. So now that we know a bit more about the uh, endocrine system, let's talk about the different hormonal treatments. So I know you mentioned before that the combined oral contraceptive was one of the ways that uh, one of the yeah. treatments methods so can you share a bit more just which for hormonal treatments what are the different ones apart from the combined oral and what are the almost like common names or brand names or you know what people would easily recognize and
1: yeah
0: yes and i think my,
1: sorry yeah. you carry on to
0: i was just going to say that also what what are the factors or what are the uh, considerations that make you know doctors decide which treatments should be given to patients just so that mm. we people understand a bit more about why because i think that's what is kind of missing sometimes sometimes they don't know why but it will be good to know for each of these um different treatments hormonal treatments what is the why and what are yeah. the
1: Absolutely. So first of all, I think it's important to talk about how hormone and hormonal treatments or how hormones treat endometriosis to start with and what drives it. So endometriosis is pretty much akin to the endometrium in the lining of the womb. So what drives the endometrium thickening and getting ready and everything is the estrogen level. Um, and in the same way, it's the estrogen that drives this endometriosis, which is the same tissue type with subtle differences, as we talked about in previous episodes, and it's in a different environment. But broadly, it becomes inflammatory and it implants and it grows and it gets angry in response to estrogen. So the estrogen levels going up make the endometriosis angry. It makes the endometrioma, those ovarian cysts full of all that chocolate menstrual blood fluid um, grow. The hormone that stabilizes things, holds them at bay, stops them being angry is the progesterone. So broadly speaking, the hormonal treatments are designed to try and reduce or stabilize estrogen levels and increase, if you like, progesterone levels, or at least stop those big spikes. If you're Googling it now and you're looking at the way the menstrual cycle is, just type in comparison between hormonal profile or hormones with the pill versus normal menstrual cycle, and you'll see those big peaks in the hormones are just smoothed out. So people often think, goodness, a hormonal contraceptive that has both estrogen and progesterone in Why are we doing that? Why are we having more estrogen? I'm taking a tablet with estrogen. Isn't that the one that makes endometriosis bad? Well, yes, it is. But actually, the way it works in suppressing ovulation, which is how the the combined contraceptive pill works as a good contraceptive on the whole, um, stops those big spikes. So it stops the estrogen level growing high. it, It stabilizes things. It just holds everything at bay. There will be lots of considerations that the doctor will take together with um, with the woman about which one suit her. There's 101 different flavours of the combined oral contraceptive, and different people will find they've been advised to go on different things. And they're used for a whole host of different things. And their simplest form, and the reason why they were designed, they're used as a contraceptive, and they work exceptionally well as a contraceptive. Um, they of course need to be taken every day. There's a bit of flexibility about when in the day you can take the combined pill versus the progesterone only pill that we'll talk about in a second Um, your GP will probably start you on one they're very used to prescribing they'll probably start you on one that's relatively easy accessible it's one that pharmacies hold something like microgynon, which has got a a relatively standard dose of both estrogen and progesterone levels there are different um, amounts of hormones in each one there are different sorts of progesterones in each one progesterones broadly come in um, in different sort of flavors as i'd describe them and they have different effects on things um, some progesterones are much more potent and they're much more effective they can however have some side effects they are metabolized to an extent in the body into those male-like hormones called androgens so some women find that um, they get a bit more greasy skin at the very extreme end um they can have sort of more 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 masculine responses to these things but generally speaking more modern hormone um pills don't have those sorts of effects people might start them for skin conditions people might start them for heavy periods people might start them simply for contraceptive but in this context we're talking about starting them primarily for endometriosis Traditionally, taking the hormonal contraceptive pill, the combined pill, you take it for 21 days, have a seven-day break, progesterone levels then drop, so it's a withdrawal of that progesterone, you have your bleed, um, and then starts again at the beginning of the next, um, next packet of pills, so it's not a traditional period, it's what we call a withdrawal bleed, where the progesterone levels have stopped. More commonly in endometriosis, with all those symptoms being associated with the time of menstruation, what we recommend is running those packs together. And people might be familiar with the concept of of tricycling, for example, where you take three packs of the pill back to back, so no break in between. Um, The aim of that is to reduce the bleeding and running the pills effectively back to back. You shouldn't have that withdrawal or bleed in between. And it effectively controls symptoms and just helps stabilize that endometriosis even more. It doesn't give it a break, basically. It says, right, stay in your box, endometriosis, don't get angry. So that's quite a commonly used technique. We often nowadays recommend taking the pill back to back for as long as you like, three months, six months, nine months, as long as you like. It's certainly not dangerous to do so. Eventually, the body may well have a little bit of a bleed, as progesterone levels just aren't able to be maintained high enough to stabilize the endometrium, in which case we often recommend taking a break and then restarting again after five days. Hormonal contraceptives, however, have got some side effects or some adverse effects. A lot of that depends on the woman's medical history. People might have read about risks involved with them, particularly things like thromboses, so clots in the legs and the lungs. We would be particularly careful in women who suffer with migraines. Of note, those migraines where you see spots and stars with aura, as we describe it, we might also need to be very careful when who have a history of high blood pressure. Age comes into it. So the risk with hormonal contraceptives does go up a little bit the older you are. Okay. But we're very confident to go up to women, you know, 40 and beyond even, provided other risk factors aren't there. Smoking plays its part, and that comes into it a little bit more, certainly if you're over 35 and a smoker. And as well as that obesity, in addition, can make being on the combined pill slightly higher risk of all those things like blood clot. So we'd be a bit cautious in that respect. For those reasons, the progesterone-only pill is often preferable in some people. Additionally, the combined pill might cause some mood swings or mood changes. People might have experienced that themselves, in which case it could be a good idea to try a different formulation of the combined pill, so slightly different hormones in it, or indeed try the progesterone-only pill to see if that settles things down progesterone only pill does what it says on the tin and it provides the progesterone level which helps stabilize all that endometriosis and stop it getting angry hopefully it doesn't always stop ovulation entirely so it works as a contraceptive in a slightly different way mainly on the endometrium itself or on the cervix um, and the way the sperm get into the body or not in the cases we hope with the contraceptive progesterone only pills can cause a little bit of irregular bleeding in actual fact, that exists in all forms of progesterone only contraception, whether it's a contraceptive implant, whether it's a contraceptive coil or, a, or an injection. It usually settles down in the first sort of three, sometimes up to six months. The bleeding is often very light, however, although it can be quite infuriating because it's irregular and unpredictable. It isn't usually associated with pain and, and usually it doesn't get in the way of people's lives too much. It's often a symptom that we try and encourage women to to. to, to, to tolerate during the first three months knowing that the end is in sight if obviously it's us intolerable or it's really interfering with people's lives absolutely, it's right to stop and switch on to another another form of contraception. Progesterone-only pills and all forms of progesterone-only contraception really are universally very, very safe. They can cause some side effects, sometimes a little bit of bloating. Some people have difficulty with weight gain. Again, they can cause some mood changes. They can cause some swelling. So any doctor that says any pill is you know totally without side effects, totally safe, is usually being slightly economical with the truth. But having said that, progesterone-only pills often don't cause any side effects for people. They work really well. They're really safe for the vast majority of the population. And they're a very, very good treatment for endometriosis. Sometimes we give them in higher doses than the the, the mini pill. So the common pill that people take, something like a Serazette. We often use stronger doses of progesterone, like Provera, which, which just works to help suppress the endometriosis even more. We're asking a bit much of a, of a small dose of the mini pill, which is usually used just for contraception to help stabilize quite deep set endometriosis. So by using higher doses, which occasionally need to be taken more than once a day, we're able to stabilize and actually hopefully shrink down things. Often that's if symptoms are quite severe. And often those sorts of doses are used in combination with, with, with waiting for surgery just to stabilize things, calm things down a little bit to make surgery a little bit more feasible and a little bit easier. Okay. I think other forms of hormonal contraception, it doesn't really matter how the progesterone is delivered. If you're using a progesterone injection, that works quite well. If you're having a progesterone implant, all of that is giving progesterone levels to the whole body and therefore treating the endometriosis that's there. One thing that I think we have to be a little bit careful about when thinking about endometriosis is the contraceptive coil. People would have come across the Mirena coil, which is the progesterone coil. The copper coil has no place in treating endometriosis. It's is it a very good contraceptive. It's a very good um, emergency contraceptive. It works really well in a lot of women, particularly those who are quite sensitive to hormones because it has no hormones in it. Mm. But as a side effect, it can cause quite heavy, quite painful periods. And anyone who suffers from endometriosis is That's obviously not going to want that at all. Um, so the myrena coil definitely has a place. Having said that, the good thing about the Myrena coil and why it's actually loved by gynecologists and patients alike is that it just delivers the hormone to where it's needed. So it delivers hormone to the lining of the womb and the womb itself. So a very, very good treatment for adenomyosis, but there isn't necessarily large amounts of hormone absorbed beyond that. So it doesn't effectively always suppress ovulation and it doesn't always treat endometriosis, which is of course, by definition, outside the womb. Having said that, in the vast majority of women, it stops your periods entirely after the first three to six months. And if all of the symptoms associated with menstruation, then actually stopping the periods can optimistically stop a lot of those debilitating symptoms. So we recommend it for that reason.
0: Okay. So what is the place of GNRH agonists?
1: Yeah, so GNRH analogues, we tend to call them, and they have a paradoxical response. They're either activating or deactivating that hormone that's released from the hypothalamus, the growth hormone release, uh, sorry, the gonadotropin releasing hormone, the, the GNRH as we call it. The idea of those is that with any of the above treatments, there are still going to be some levels of estrogen and progesterone. There's still going to be some hormone driving the endometriosis, potentially causing some symptoms. The GNRH effectively stops pretty much all ovarian production of of oestrogen and progesterone. So it switches the ovaries off, it tells them to calm down. It is akin to someone going through the menopausal state so women on average age 51 in the uk population of course huge variance in that but 51 on average will go through the menopause the ovaries will stop producing the estrogen and progesterone as they normally do and women who have endometriosis in their late 40s or early 50s will be pleased to hear that usually after the menopause those symptoms calm down the menstruation stops if there is significant disease in terms of deep infiltrating nodules and the like you can of course still have some symptoms because the endometriosis hasn't disappeared but usually it's much calmer and it's not as affected by the hormones The GNRH, because it reduces those hormones to such a low level, we usually find the symptoms improve dramatically. Menstruation should stop, and touch wood, the symptoms of of pain particularly, particularly those associated with menstruation, should get better. Some doctors would would talk about using a GNRH as a sort of test to try and pinpoint exactly what might be causing the symptoms, if the pain all gets better with with, with the GNRH, then more likely the diagnosis at least is endometriosis it's a hormonal driven condition it would be incorrect to say however that the GnRH is going to stop all symptoms in all cases in all women with endometriosis we know that the pain in actual fact isn't always entirely attributable to the endometriosis itself i think we've talked about in previous episodes how the nerves can become affected and when you've got scar tissue and the nerves that are affected and all those inflammatory mediators even if it's not getting angry every time you have your cycle there's been such a long duration of damage in that area that the pain has become a chronic issue. It's no longer just to do with menstruation. It's always there. And is the GNRH going to shrink away and and make these large nodules of endometriosis in the deep infiltrating variety or large ovarian cysts full of all that chocolate tissue is going to make them disappear? No, of course it's not. So it's not a cure. It can help the symptoms, it can stabilize things. If surgery isn't an option, surgery often has risks, and surgery in some people can be incredibly risky. Surgery could be something that's been tried before, and, and, and you know the risks would, would potentially outweigh benefits in some circumstances. So GNRH definitely has its place. It can be used as an adjunct to surgery before or after. It can be used to try and test whether it's endometriosis, and it works quite well, but it's certainly not a cure for things. All of the above, and GNRH particularly, can have some side effects. And, and, and I think you know, a lot of people listening to this would be able to relate to that. Some people, fortunately, I suppose the lucky ones, uh, don't have any side effects, and, and they end up getting along really well with it. And I have quite a few patients, that, and we have them in London, who are quite happy and, and keep wanting it because you know, it's working well. It's suppressing their symptoms, and they're, and they're doing just fine. Some people find mood changes particularly can affect them. And of course, because you were in a state of the menopause, entirely reversible, by the way, when we stop the injections, the periods will return, the ovaries will return to doing normal function. But because we're in that state of the menopause, you might expect some of those side effects associated with the menopause. People might've um, had them themselves. They might've you know, experienced their mums, aunties, friends going through these sorts of things. Um, people talk about hot flushes, night sweats, mood changes, headaches, fatigue. None of it sounds much fun, does it? Um, And and that's absolutely something that, that, that is fairly commonly experienced to varying degrees, I would say by people who are on GnRH, and so it's not without its cost. You'll be reassured to hear, however, that actually adding back a small amount of estrogen is able to effectively suppress at least some of those symptoms and, and allow people to get on with their lives without significantly reactivating endometriosis. It sounds paradoxical, doesn't it? We're suppressing yeah. the estrogen, but we're giving you some back, why are we doing that? But actually a small amount usually delivered through patches or there's a tablet which is it's called tibolone, it's a little bit like estrogen, it's slightly different, but it has the same effect on the body doesn't significantly reactivate endometriosis, but is enough to stop the night sweats, stop the hot flushes, et cetera. Okay. One of the downsides, I think the other important one to mention in terms of GNRH and why people say, well, why can't I stay on this for years? Is because in that postmenopausal state, and people might've experienced this or heard about this um, with with friends and family, the longer you are postmenopausal for, there's an increased risk, particularly for things like bone health. People might've heard of something called osteoporosis, to a lesser degree, something called osteopenia, which describes the thinning of the bones and weakening of the bones. There's a reason why women on average have more fractured hips and fractured bones in later life than men. It's to do with being in the menopause and the bones after that estrogen isn't around anymore because estrogen is the hormone that makes the bone remodel and gives it structure. When that's no longer there, the bones can progressively thin out and run into problems. So of course, the longer your body has been in that postmenopausal state for, theoretically, there's more of a chance for this osteoporosis or osteopenia as it would start off to develop. Some of our listeners might have had bone scans for that, and that's definitely something we recommend for people who are taking prolonged courses of of, of the GnRH injections. And certainly beyond six months, even if someone isn't getting those postmenopausal side effects, the hormone replacement with estrogen becomes mandatory because we know that without that extra estrogen, the bones will thin out and we may well run into problems.
0: Why don't you take a break, grab a snack, or go get hydrated and we will be back in fifteen seconds. Okay. That's quite interesting because I was wondering while you're taking, you know, the GNR age and even the ad back well Mm. with or without the ad back are there like i'll say vitamins or supplements or things like that that you could take that could help to i don't know like vitamin d or something like calcium i'm not sure but it always i always wondered if there was something that you could take to help you with at least your health um even quite right
1: in- Absolutely, and you know, and the best way of getting all these vitamins is, of course, through a broad, balanced diet. You know, having a little bit of everything. Too much of one thing usually bad, and, and all those good, healthy things. So there's loads of vitamin D in oily fish, and lots of calcium in in in, in milk, eggs. Cheese, that kind of stuff. Vitamin D, overwhelmingly, and as we know in the UK, is available during the summer months, but not so much in the winter time. It comes from the the sunlight affecting our body. So, we know, vitamin D deficiency is a little bit more common in darker skin people, people who wear more clothes to cover up. So, supplementation, I think, in those circumstances, or if you don't have a diet that includes meat and fish um, and dairy, would be definitely advisable. Calcium, the same. So, you know, a broad diet is good. Getting out in the sun is good. I think if you've got any risk factors to having deficiencies of those things, definitely taking more in supplement form would be a good idea. And you know what? There's very little downside to taking a multivitamin.
0: Okay. So I have a sort of controversial question. So I want to ask about Luprona and Orelisa. And I wanted to talk about it because many in the community talk about using Lupron a lot or, or, or Elisa. There's this, there's been like lots of research on mm. how the how adversely Lupron has affected a lot of women. Apparently there have been I think that's in America, there have been like there was a list of all the people that have been like almost like called Lupron survivors. So mm. Lupron and also Orelisa in particular have had like a bad rep because they seem to have been first of all, offer to patients. And this is one of the reasons why I think this, what we're doing, this this project is very important because it's really educating people on why to so not just take this medication and, you know, and maybe they expect to just get cured, but instead they're getting some of all those side effects that you've talked Absolutely. about and they don't know why. And then they go online and see everyone saying, oh my goodness, do not use Luprin. So I thought it would be something that we could talk about just you know, what exactly is Lupron one of the GNRH um, ones we talked about and how does it work and why is it, why does it get bad rep even more than, you know, almost all hormonal medications? Would you say people should avoid it as much as they can or at least just understand why that is an option for them? So I just thought it would be good to talk about it to to round up this conversation.
1: Yeah, so Lupinon is a a GNRH um, analogue, exactly the same. And it's, uh, Olyssa, again, more commonly used in um, the US is an oral, so a tablet form uh, of a GNRH analogue. These mostly come in injection form. And certainly in the UK, we don't tend to use Olyssa as much. So they're all injection form or or depot injection broadly speaking, they all have the same sorts of what we describe in in medical terms as side effects and adverse effects. So side effects are the sorts of things that people get, those menopausal side effects, those mood swings, which I think it's important that people know about. For goodness sake, if I was taking a medication, I'd want to know all about it beforehand I want to know the possibility I want to be informed before I went into it side effects usually although they can interrupt with people's lives be severely debilitating and mean the medications have to be stopped aren't necessarily dangerous adverse effects tend to be a little bit more on the risky side so we're talking about thinning of bones increased fracture risk those kinds of things the key really is is knowing what you're going into and I don't think any good doctor should be saying look just take this it'll get better women deserve more information than that and and certainly if you were approaching an endometriosis specialist with these things um, certainly I would hope to think they would be able to go through all of the risks and benefits with you exactly the sort of things we just discussed in even more detail and in detail specific to you because you know your condition might be different how is it going to affect my endometriosis what side effects can i expect you know this is me i'm um you know i'm, I'm caucasian or i'm afro-caribbean well, does that change my risk my bmi is 22 my bmi is 35 does that change my risk you know, my diet is x y or z so there's all sorts of additional things to discuss and people have their own experience people have other things going on in their lives you know does endometriosis affect your mental health do you have other conditions going on that make you more susceptible to mood swings so I think these are all important questions to ask. These are all important things to go through. The other thing is, you know, with anything in medicine, and we experienced this a little bit with the myrina coil as well, people who do have adverse effects, and I would be not telling you the truth if I said people don't have adverse effects, or people have experienced extreme side effects and aren't able to tolerate things, not to be dismissed at all. Um, incredibly important that people who experience these effects tell people about it, they tell their doctors about it, they find treatment for it or they change medication because it's not working. But those who do experience side effects are undoubtedly going to talk about them and they're going to tell people about them and they're going to be investigated quite rightly. So for the sort of casual observer who's going to look these things up, what's going to come first? Well, they're going to receive all that information. They might receive some scare stories about things. And I think totally have your mind open to that. Be aware of that. Talk about the possibilities. Say, look, doctor, I've read this. I'm scared. I don't necessarily want to start this medication because, you know, I've heard these horror stories. Explore those stories. Let them know what your, your concerns are and your ideas are about, about what to expect and go through it on an individual basis. It's not to, something to be entered into lightly, but I would say, and I would you know, even counter for the majority of people and for a, a very good proportion of people, these medications are fantastic. They give people a quality of life back. They're stopping people who are having debilitating symptoms day in, day out, chronic pain. They can't go to work. It's affecting home life. It's affecting relationships. Haven't been able to have sex for months. And then they find as things suppress, as things settle down, They might have some hot flushes, they might have some mood changes, they might find they get some side effects and actually commonly people will, but on balance of risk and benefit it works for them and it works great. It's not a long-term solution, you're not going to stay on these injections for years, it would be dangerous to do so, it would be dangerous and irresponsible to go into it without knowing all those risks, but actually for a lot of people it works really well. For a lot of people, it's a it's a stopgap. For some people, particularly as we're finding during the, the COVID pandemic and the extraordinary unprecedented delays we have in being able to operate, it's providing people blessed relief um, when actually we would have hopefully operated three months ago. Symptoms are so unbearable. Look, let's try this. Let's talk about this. Let's give this as an option. Injections come in different doses and there's the uh, dose that usually lasts a month. So a 28-day preparation. People might have heard of Zolidex, Decapeptil, um, Grosserellin, triptorelin they've got lots of different names whether looking at brand names or chemical names um, and there's a, a monthly version or a three-monthly version Eve side effects you know are something that, that, that um, you're concerned about it might be more sensible to start on a monthly preparation and then you know what it's not going to last forever and there's a washout period sometimes actually side effects can happen at the beginning and then start to settle down a little bit so go into it with your eyes open it would be you know foolish not to and don't accept the doctor just offhand saying look this is this take it learn about it, think about it. I think people who are listening to this have hopefully done their research, but I would counter, don't be scared, you know, talk about your individual circumstances, let the doctor know. I would much rather know someone had read a scare story online or they read a, you know, a very realistic story online, and they were worried about side effects and adverse effects because we could talk about it and we could make a joint decision to actually not try it or try something else.
0: Amazing. I think what you said about not being scared and also going in, like knowing, you know, with your eyes open really and understanding, you know, what's going to happen, learning a lot about, you know, your treatment and also saying that it's, uh, most of the time these treatments are like stop gaps, maybe before surgery, Mm. just to help you with your quality of life is very important. And I'm so happy that we actually got to talk about this today. Absolutely. So thank you so much for this episode. I've learned so much about hormonal treatments and what the risks are and the benefits as well. And I know that a lot of people have learned from from this episode as well, or will learn from this episode as well. And I look forward to next episode where we talk about surgical treatments of endometriosis, the ablation versus excision um, argument and the different kinds of treatments for the different kinds of endometriosis. Stay tuned, everyone.
1: <laughs> Perfect. Looking forward to it. Thank yeah. you, Tony.
0: Okay. I hope you have learned a lot from this episode today. I sure have. Be sure to come back next week for the episode talking about surgical treatments for endometriosis. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love to know. Join me on Instagram and Facebook. You can also follow the Instagram page of Chelsea Center for Minimal Invasive Gynecology at ccmig.london, where Tom shares a lot of relevant and helpful information on endometriosis. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe to this podcast. Till next time, remember, you are not defined by endo. Thanks for listening. Be sure to come back next time.